0: Well, it's always great to uh, spend some time with you folks. I think this is my uh, third year in a row, I believe, uh, spending some time with uh, the Bridge Church down here and always appreciate opportunities to uh, to see you all. And um, I get to see Pastor Paul uh, more often than than all of you as part of a, a small group that we uh, both attend and Thank you to Pastor Rob and Matt for just your hospitality uh, this morning as, as always, as, as well as all the volunteers and all the folks that are uh, just contributing to making this happen because this is a very unique time in our history to say the least and uh, things are very uncertain and we surely have uh, experienced a lot of that ourselves uh, in uh, Pennsylvania Adult and Teen Challenge and you did nail it on the first try, brother, so I'm proud of you. <clears throat> Many of you know we're, we were Teen Challenge Training Center And then to make it clear that people understood That the primary age group that we serve as adults We, uh, we, we changed our name to Pennsylvania Adult and Teen Challenge Could it have been more creative? Probably <laughs> <clears throat> Nevertheless, it came out of the national office And it, it's easy just to blame them for stuff uh, but, but again, thank you for the opportunity to share in this series. You asked for it. And today's topic is concerning the stigma that is associated with addiction. I think this is a really, really important topic, and it's not spoken about enough, and I, and I would say in both the secular and the faith uh, communities. In fact, many times I think the faith community is uh, worse at it than the, the secular community because of a lack of education and just a lack of knowing how do I do this, not out of a lack of wanting to not do it, it's just not knowing what do we do, how do we talk about it. And and I have lots of conversations where people talk about addiction and they don't really know what kind of language to use. And that has a big part in uh, just in how we address the topic in general. And if you think about it, stigma can pour over into any topic. Uh, My my wife is a pro-life speaker. And um, you think of the topic of of abortion and stigma associated with that and and hiding that that 's big that 's a big one. Think of what we 're currently dealing with with this uh, covid nineteen crisis, and there is quite a stigma i don 't know if you remember, but at the very beginning of this, I often say that it was in uh, the, the, it was really the night and i 'm a sports guy, and john here who 's here with me we 're sports guys. Uh, but it was a night, if, if some of you who are sports people remember, that the NBA said they're canceling their season the very next morning is when the whole entire world shut down. Very interesting. And I'm serious. If you, if you look, <clears throat> there's even articles and things uh, written about that. But I remember at the beginning watching interviews online on the news where people that had were some of the f- first people to catch this thing called COVID-19 were very much stigmatized, and some of them were receiving, like, death threats and stuff. I don't know if you, if you remember seeing that at the very beginning. Like, you got sick, so you're a bad person, which was very interesting to see. Um, but then I fast-forwarded from March, and you go, like, two months ahead, and then I my, found myself. I, I ended up getting it. I had, I had COVID-19. I was tested and positive. Then my wife got it. And then I'm, I would guess that my kids got it even though the kids were completely uh, asymptomatic as, as most uh, kids are. But it was a very unique experience because when I f- knew that I had it, I felt this, like, what do I do with telling people? And it's that kind of thing, if you, if you can compare that to somebody who has an addiction problem or somebody who's had an abortion or something like that, and, but specifically talking about addiction, people who have that, Many times feel the same kind of thing, and it's almost like this, I don't want to tell people, and there's almost a sense of like guilt and shame tied to it, and that is really what we're talking about today, very much tailored to the topic of, of addiction. <clears throat> as a brief reminder, I know many of, of you know, well, I have one, one thing to say before that, but as a faith-based provider... Um, the question that I'm asking today, and, and I've been working on this talk here for uh, quite some time, and I've been, I've been speaking about this topic of stigma because I, th- I think it's that important. I've done this now uh, probably close to 10 times uh, with, in, a, in a setting that's similar to this. But the question I often ask is who is, who is your neighbor? And obviously, we're, we're, we're talking about this in a biblical sense, but I want you to think about who is your neighbor? And I want, to, I want to briefly describe uh, this from, from both individual and family uh, perspectives. And I have a bunch of quotes and things I, I want to read to you from folks who work with us. But an important point to remember. <clears throat> the idea that we are created in the image of God, and that's our identity. So we need to remember that we're created in the image of God. We are, we are people. We're not things. And that's, that's one of the main points I'll, I'll get at today as well. But as a, as a faith-based provider, Pennsylvania Adult and Teen Challenge, I know most of you already know this, but if some of you don't, um, we are an organization that's positioned uh, from a faith-based perspective to help both individuals and families and communities uh, to deal with uh, a substance use disorder. And the programs that we offer, it's a um, medical with, withdrawal management program uh, or a, what people would know as a detox program for folks who are, are struggling with opiates, uh, with benzodiazepines and alcohol. And then we have our clinical counseling services, and those serving as complementary programs to our long-term discipleship program. And I know most of you, you know that. Uh, But then we also have uh, an outpatient arm, which we had last year also at this time when... Uh, when I was here. But that is through an organization called the Naaman Center. And some of you may or may not have heard of that, but it's primarily out of Lancaster and Dauphin counties, at least at the, for, for the time being. And we acquired that organization for outpatient services uh, last year. So we have now what people would refer to as a full continuum of services for people in addiction. That's the, that's the, uh, the, the main point with, for that. Um, And and another extremely important thing to note when you're talking about addiction is that addiction is not simply an individual issue. Addiction is something that impacts the entire family unit. And it might seem obvious when I say it, but a lot of folks don't think of it that way. And a statistic that I often hear is that everybody, you either know somebody directly or you know somebody who knows somebody who's dealing with uh, an addiction. And that's usually just just factually true, and I would guess it's probably in, in here as well. But going back to that original question, who was your neighbor? Now, the text that I'm going to read to you is coming out of Luke chapter 10. And I believe it's a pretty commonly known uh, story with the story of the Good Samaritan. But I want to read it to you because I think it's important to hear some of the stuff that's going on in this text. So, uh, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? This is a perfect story for the question I'm asking all of of us this morning. And I ask myself this question quite often. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, When he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. And we know there was religious rules and things back in this day. But you have a priest and a Levite who simply saw something, maybe like right here, and said, I'm going to go over there and just walk by and pretend I don't see it. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. To the man who fell among the robbers. It's a very appropriate question for us, too, right? And this is the actual text. It feels like it's talking to me. I don't don't know if you feel that way, too. And the obvious answer he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, You go and do likewise. So, again, the question, Who is my neighbor? And that's something for us all to ponder this morning. How should we treat our neighbor? What if they have an addiction? What if it's the parents or the spouse of someone with an addiction? It's a tough question to ask. But the text above, it tells us that it can pretty much be anyone. Did the Samaritan know the man who was beaten and robbed? There's nothing to suggest that in this text. He simply encountered him and he decided to do something. He decided to act. He didn't close his mind To this man who was beaten. A few things that it doesn't appear. It doesn't appear that he thought that this gentleman was homeless. It didn't appear that he thought he was lost in addiction. He didn't think the worst of the man. He simply decided to do something to help. That leads me to the topic of of stigma here uh, this morning. And I believe it's a terrible problem in our society. And we need to face it head on. Because it's the way that we think about people who have challenges. And remember, we are created in the image of God with that, that sense of inherent dignity and worth. That's, that's hugely important to think about. How do we think of other people when they have problems? Do we see them? Do we look at people and say, this person is created in, in, in the image of God? Sometimes it's, t- sometimes it's very difficult to do. I want to read a definition, and, and like I said, I have a couple, I have a couple uh, quotes there directly here. But some folks might say, "Okay, well, what what, is, what exactly is stigma?" And I'm part of uh, what's called the uh, Berks County Opioid uh, Task Force, <clears throat> and it's called SOS Berks, and they have a definition on the, on the website. And I thought it was, I think it's a really good one to say. You know, how, how do we? I'm talking about stigma, but if I don't define the term, then how are we going to have a common understanding of what I'm actually talking about? So this definition says, stigma is defined as a set of negative beliefs that a group or society holds about a topic or a group of people. Stigma is a major cause of discrimination and exclusion, and it contributes to the abuse of human rights. When a person experiences stigma, they're seen as less than because of their real or perceived health status. Stigma is rarely based on facts but rather on assumptions, preconceptions, and generalizations. Therefore, its negative impact can be prevented or lessened through education. I think it's a really good, solid uh, definition for what we are uh, talking about here this morning. And there's a young lady who works with us. Uh, who is a graduate of our long-term faith-based program, but she's also an employee with the organization now. And I asked her, I said, give me, give me the perspective from an individual, give, give me your individual perspective on stigma for your, your own self. And then tell me, uh, what are our, f- our families experiencing of the folks who are in our programs? Because many times the families get forgotten. She said for herself, as a person in long-term recovery for nearly six years, and this was, this was so probably seven years, I would say the stigma associated with substance use is still alive and well. When I share my story or pieces of my experience with certain groups of people, I can sense they're not as accepting as others. I've watched their body language and even the way that they've treated me change in an instant and at times can make me feel that I do not have the same opportunities or worth. And this is a person who's, like, helping to run our whole entire organization that has seven years of, of clean time can still, can still feel this. I will say that I have seen somewhat of a change over the years in how people react uh, toward or respect a person in recovery. <clears throat> she says, I can't tell you if it's because I'm more educated on how to handle it or if it's because people are more aware due to the epidemic that's ravaging our, our communities. And her hope, she said, is that it's a little bit of both. Then she goes on to say, I believe that some current clients are reluctant about their future careers and their next steps once they leave our organization. Because some people will always see them as the person they were, uh, that they once were. And if they are not strong enough, the opinions, the opinions of others may cause them to Relapse. That's terrible. No, nobody in this room would ever want that. For us to look at somebody who's in recovery, see them doing well, but because we know they had a passive addiction, we kind of give them a little scowl. And then they lose hope and they go and relapse. Nobody would, nobody would want to do that. But many times we just don't know, what do we do? How do we talk about it? What are the words that we use? Because that's a sobering thought and it reveals how much the outside world, and like I said at the beginning, especially the church, uh, t- you guys can help so much. We can help so much in welcoming people who have dedicated themselves to posi- a positive direction in their, in their lives. And especially people who are, who are seeking to make God-honoring changes in their lives. But listen to this from a family perspective. <clears throat> I would say roughly a third of the families that I work with have told me how grateful they are for resources like our family programming department. Because they feel too shameful and embarrassed to talk to their friends. Co workers, and even other family members about what their son or their daughter is going through. They fear they, they won't understand or that they will see the family or individual in a totally different light. At times, this type of stigma has also delayed the family's response in getting their loved one's help. So they continue to enable, not create boundaries, and sweep things under the rug because of their fears. This, in turn, has created an unhealthy family system that has the potential to continue for generations to come. It's a really powerful statement. And I think those are very, very helpful thoughts with, with how we see the family unit and the shame and the guilt that's oftentimes tied to, directly to addiction. Uh, for those of you who are here in the past when, I, when I've been here, you know uh, I, I am also a graduate of of this program. I came into uh, Teen Challenge back in 2006 and finished the program in 2007, became an intern in the program. And when I started my internship at, at this organization, I was the lead housekeeper. So my job was to uh, change trash cans, to clean toilets, and keep the campus clean. That's, that's how I started uh, here at, at this organization. And then I became an employee and eventually uh, became one of the departmental directors to the organization's chief operating officer. And then five years ago this weekend, like today, five years ago, today became the president and CEO of the organization as a graduate of our program. So I I say all that to give you just some some thoughts and and reflections on my experience of being in that place of, of hopelessness. Because... Uh, Being caught in a grip of addiction for a number of years is not a fun place to be. It's a horrible place to be, especially when you have uh, the the issue of extreme physical dependence. So me, uh, my addiction was uh, directly tied to opioids. And uh, once that took hold of my life, and there's a long story that we don't have to, some of you may have heard it already, Um, but it grips you. And I often use the, 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 the phrase or the statement here of being caught in the grip of addiction. But I can tell you when I was in that place, whatever, whatever that means, it's hard to describe it unless you've been in it. But my identity was something that was without worth. And, and I looked at myself at that point. I had given up on, I gave up on life and saw myself as less than human. And I think it's an important thing to know how the person in addiction is feeling. I accepted, and this is one of the key things to not do uh, using words like this, but I accepted my status as a so-called addict or a junkie. Now, let's be honest. You don't have to raise your hand if you don't want to. But how many of us have thought of the topic of addiction and used the word addict? I'm guilty. There you go. (laughs) sweetheart you now you're in the club too <laughs> how many of us have very clearly heard that word many many times how many of us didn't just don't know how to describe addiction without using that word right i know for myself this is something i've been trying to to get out of myself now for a ye- i'm talking years now for me some of you this might be the first time you've heard this that using the word addict or junkie is a really bad thing and it, and it causes people to hide and it could cause people to never go and seek help. It, it keeps families from talking to you about it. It keeps families from telling other people. And then eventually what ends up happening is addiction gets so bad and you know what happens to people? They die. How many of us have ever thought of it that way with the way that we talk about addiction could really be something that's, that's enabling life that if we just talked about it the same way we talk about other types of what we might call a disorder, um, we could actually promote life and help people in a different kind of way. I just never really thought about it until a couple of years ago. But I can tell you from my own feelings, I was too, I was too ashamed to admit my failures, even though it was evident to to everybody who was around me. And this concept of hiding in what, what I'm calling the hiding in the shadows, uh, that's a very true thing, um, but it's one of the reasons I don't know. Maybe I, maybe I'm making this up, but I think it's one of the reasons why people who are really caught in addiction only come out at nighttime, because you don't have to really be seen by other people. You can kind of hide in the sh- hide in the shadows, like literally. And, I th- and I've been there. I know what that means. Um, but when I when I use that word again, I think it's important to say like, okay, what do you really mean by like, what is stigma? What is this shadows thing you're talking about? Um, but for me, like the, the way that I define this, I said the shadows are the ways and places that people caught in addiction hide from people and hide from reality. So it doesn't physically have to be darkness, but the lifestyle is darkness. Uh, they do this out of fear, guilt, shame, or any combination of any types of feelings that, that are like that. that's what I'm talking about when I'm, when you hear me use the word, like people hiding in the shadows, that's what they're doing. They're hiding in their guilt. They're hiding in their shame. And that then eventually becomes a place of, of hopelessness. I knew I couldn't hold a job. I wasn't willing to seek help. I gave up on life and simply accepted this status of, of hopelessness. And it's the saddest place you can ever be. If, if you, if you, you can't describe it unless you've been there to a place of completely just giving up hope and just saying, Hey, this is, it is what it is. And this is the way that I'm going to be. And you just start to live it out. It's an extraordinarily sad thing, but I can tell you the legal system is what helped me. Most people that are in this spot don't say that the legal system is the, is the group that helped me uh, to get sober. This legal system, I would say was probably the group that kept me alive because every uh, couple of months when they come banging on my door and take me back to jail and violate me for my probation, and would give me a chance to stay alive for a couple more days. Uh, but that's where I found myself uh, willing to get help. So there's a difference between being willing to do something and wanting to do something, right? That's a simple one for us to, all to understand. Sometimes you can be willing to say okay, but you don't really want to say okay. You're just going to do it because maybe there's a good reason as to why, even though you have no desire to do it. We have to come to a place and you have to come to a place when you're dealing with this with folks with addiction to make them willing. Then it's the job of the provider that you send them to. It's their job to help bring about this desire to want change. Because nobody wants to deal with addiction. How many of you want to go to the dentist? I don't see the hands flying up. But you're willing to go to the dentist because you know that it's going to prevent other problems, right? That's a very simple one. Well, that's the same thing with somebody who's in addiction. You simply need them to want. We don't need them to, uh, to, to go any further than that. <clears throat> because that can really, uh, that can, all these things can lead to very dark, bad places extremely quickly. But accessing, again, and I said this, that the legal system... Um, was the the spot that that helped me personally but it was then my my family participating in that so my mother saying that she was no longer going to enable my decision making finally said you're gonna go because I'm not going to do it anymore I'm not going to help you anymore but I wasn't willing I mean I wasn't wanting at that point I was only willing and that was okay that was okay because obviously that something changed right I mean, we're going back now uh, 14 years. But think of this data, and and I shared this data. I share it usually every year that I come here. But we have lost approximately since the year 2000. This is a very staggering number. We've lost somewhere around 750,000 people to overdose deaths that are reported. That's just reported. So who knows how many more Are not included. Did you get that number there? 750,000 since 2000. What do you do with that? Since 2014, it's been a quarter million. So you're talking just in a number of of, of, of a third of the time. You're now catching up to those numbers extraordinarily quick. I want to give you a couple points for for my life of, of a person who... Um, has has walked through this and then give you a couple ways that you can begin to help to train yourself to talk about addiction because my my learning points as a person that has been free from substances for 13 years and brought into a relationship with the lord through the gospel of grace i've come to see that hope is real that's something that we should all understand i've come to see that my life it has worth I've learned to stop using some of the words that I would have once identified myself, these words that we've already started to talk about, words like addict, alcoholic, junkie. I no longer say those words. I've started learning to use words and say things like a person with a substance use disorder, a person with an alcohol use disorder, somebody that has a substance use problem, Somebody with, uh, that's dealing with drug misuse, these things are very important. I know they might seem simple, but they're very important. A person in recovery, or how about a person in long-term recovery? That's always a great one to see. And I, and I compare it this way. In the same way that we would see somebody who has lung cancer from smoking cigarettes for 40 years, let's say. How many of us refer to that person as cancer man? Nobody does. We refer to this as a person. It's a human being created in the image of God with a problem that needs to be dealt with. And words associated with stigma, they cause shame and they prevent individuals and families from seeking help. Friends, as we get close to coming to a close here, as as you can tell... I want to challenge you all uh, this morning because we can change this. We really can change this. You all in this room right now and that are listening online can change this by thinking differently about this topic and playing an active role in reducing the stigma that's associated with addiction. By changing the way that we see and the way that we talk about addiction and those that are caught in its grip. So, who is my neighbor? It can be anyone, and we've seen that from from Luke. You can think about it in your context of people that you encounter. And the important thing to know is that we should be posturing our hearts in a way that's ready to help bring positive change uh, to our world and to our community, to our church. And then just a closing thought, and this is regarding uh, human dignity. I've said that a couple times. And I want to read Genesis Genesis 127. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. In my life, as a person of faith, I've come to embrace the idea that God assigns worth and dignity to humanity. The concept of dignity transcends human thoughts of human worth. Let let me just say that one more time. The concept of dignity transcends human thoughts of human worth. Therefore, we have no right to judge the worth of other people because we don't have that right. God does that. But when it comes to to substance use disorder, we must do the right thing, allowing and even encouraging the people who are suffering that are caught in its grip the opportunity to simply identify themselves as human beings created in the image of God and not things. And when we do this, that we are then on the right track for promoting life and what I often refer to as wholeness. So as the worship team uh, is is already up here and they're gonna close, uh, my very last thought here, let us care for and honor others and all play an active role in reducing the stigma that's associated with addiction. I always love coming and spending time with you and I love the opportunity. And again, if we all make an effort to do this, we all can make a difference. Thank you so much.